over a decade of uninterrupted growth and low interest rates. So people have short memories, they forget. These companies are realizing you really can't cut your way to prosperity. In the first 100 days, do you really see, do they really walk the walk and, and talk the talk? High quality feedback is a lever for change and growth. Some of the leaders in place today, this is the first time they're going through something that is of a significant challenge that's not growth related. Welcome to Disruption Matters, a podcast mini-series produced by PEI Group in partnership with series sponsor Alex Partners that delves into the forces that are reshaping our world and how the private markets can not only address these changes, but emerge stronger from them. This season, we've explored how GPs can best prepare for massive disruption at each point of the deal cycle. And we've reached our final episode, which will naturally delve into best practices for exiting investments. As always, I'm joined by my colleague, Rob Kotecki. How about we start this one with a game? Hmm, what kind of game? Mind reading. I'm thinking of an industry cliche, a buzzword that just makes your eyes glaze over. But which one? Value creation. Strike one. Proprietary deal flow. Strike two. Our greatest asset is our people. So close. We'll call that one a foul ball. One more guess. Okay. All right. Let's see. Um, oh, I've got it. Stakeholder. There you go. It's almost like you have the answer right in front of you in a script. I'll never tell. The reality is that stakeholder is fast becoming a cliche because as it turns out, they do actually matter to the success of any investment, some more than others, but nobody can pretend that the entire ecosystem of buyers, investors, employees, and local communities only matter for that feel-good statement on the website. And that's why we're talking about them today. Wait, aren't we talking about exits? Exits can be remarkable reality checks about how much value was actually created and how well the GP and his portfolio company have fostered healthy relationships with all its stakeholders. As in the buyer looks under the hood and maybe finds a disgruntled workforce? Or the LP doesn't understand why the GP chose that exit route at that time. Or why the GP didn't exit yet. LPs may want returns, but these days they're also savvy enough to want to know how those returns were generated. And one of the core drivers of stakeholder talk is the reputational damage that comes when that portco runs afoul of environmental regulations or labor practices. Sounds like we're veering awfully close to talking about ESG right now. The politics of ESG shouldn't distract us here. What we're looking for is the best way to exit an investment that addresses the concerns of all stakeholders. Here's how Kyle Nelson a partner and managing director at Alex Partners, explains it. Look, I think in today's market and age, whether it's customers, employees, suppliers, communities, investor relations, you have to be engaged with all of these stakeholders to maximize value. And having a specific strategy that focuses on creating value for each of these stakeholder groups will ultimately manifest itself in returns at the end of an investment life cycle. You know, an example I always use is, you know, investments made in, employees and local communities can increase the availability of talent, increase productivity of a happy and engaged workforce, et cetera. And so I think it's really critical to have a tailored strategy thinking about each one of these key stakeholder groups and any one and of itself is important, but as a collective, it's important to be thinking holistically about how to engage with each of these groups. We spend a lot of time thinking about kind of building advisory committees with our companies to really go systematically and proactively building stakeholder buy-in. 
And that's Richard De Silva, the founder and managing partner of Lateral Investment Management, which provides first institutional growth capital to high growth companies in the middle market. We're always investing in growth oriented businesses and there are changes along the way. If a change is being made that impacts stakeholders, try to be proactive in getting their buy-in to why those kinds of decisions are being made and certainly get in front of any concerns that might be raised. Proactively building stakeholder buy-in sounds great, but what do LPs think about that effort? How much does it matter to them? Here's John Carlo Mark, the founder of Upwelling Capital Group and formerly the senior portfolio manager of CalPERS AIM program. So I don't know if LPs across the board think at that level, but the trend is you're seeing them trying to capture more information about alignment between their investment managers and partners and the companies that they invest in. So the alignment across the board, internally, externally in the community, done correctly, ultimately leads to the best kind of company, which ultimately can be sold at the highest valuations. And that sale at the highest valuation is up to one stakeholder group in particular, the buyer. Before we start, we're thinking about who are logical buyers for the business. That's Jonathan Presnell of Blue Point Capital Partners, which manages $1.5 billion in opportunities in the lower middle market. And then you know, the first year, is, there's a lot of activity going on within the company. But as you start to get on that road path towards an exit, really kind of working with bankers or, or management team connections and getting direct dialogue, you know, make sure that there's not too much dialogue going on because their full-time job is running the company. But starting that to build those relationships with potential buyers, either through you know, meeting for lunch or coffee with CEO to CEO. We've had good success with investment banking conferences where we've got our CEO's presenting that gives them access to both strategic buyers and private equity groups that could be interested. Here's Richard De Silva again, who's very bullish in identifying buyers and fostering those relationships early. The private equity cliche is that you know good businesses are bought, not sold. And so you know, first of all, we're in the diligence process looking for buyers that are not doing what these companies are doing. So it's looking for those white spaces, looking for where they're thinking short term and we can think a little bit intermediate to long term to really create value. So we generally only invest in spaces where we know the buyers already, but also don't want to be too much kind of thinking just for an exit. You know, as a former entrepreneur, I don't like kind of just building to exit. I like kind of building standalone businesses that can be successful on their own and have ambitions at least to be independent public companies over time. Although we all know the IPO market isn't exactly booming at the moment. Here's Kyle Nelson with a reality check for folks dreaming of going public anytime soon. You know, I saw a statistic through the first half of the year, I think over 50% of exits have been to strategics, but it's just a route that maybe is showing some glimpses right now of coming back around on the back half of the year, but certainly not been a ton of activity there year to date, I think. We tell our existing portfolio companies, don't think about the IPO market, but always think about the IPO market. Richard De Silva again. Always build yourself as if you want to go public long term, but don't think about that as an exit over the next 12 months. I think that the IPO market is closed for as long as the Fed keeps incrementally raising rates. If the IPO route is closed, that leaves strategics and other private equity firms. 
Of course, that involves telling a story of a company that's not only running on all cylinders, as they say, but which also has runway for growth and improvement for new owners. So how does someone sell the narrative that a company is doing great, but could also be doing even better? Here's Presnell from Bluepoint. By nature of what we do, our job is not to write the whole book, it's to write a chapter. You want it to be a good chapter and you want it to kind of lead into good chapters that follow and a long story, but we don't need to accomplish everything during our ownership period. There's certain things that will drive the most value and that we have resources behind and and have experience in, but those resources and experience are different than other buyers. And so it's really trying to figure out what can we help the team accomplish as best as we can to drive value during our ownership period. And then we always try to think what's the 10, 15, 20 year path for the business. And so how do we set it up for that? We don't have to complete all of those things that need to be done in the next 20 years, but how do we best position it for that? GPs may only write a chapter, but that chapter ends with a pretty dramatic cliffhanger. Namely, did they do enough to warrant their time and capital? So how can GPs end on a high note? Here's Richard De Silva. Some of it is also just being brutally honest with the buyer, because you're finding that buyer for whom the negatives can be addressed. That is a critical part of it. What we try to do is really jump in with our team to some extent to kind of bridge those gaps and wherever possible, explain what the long-term solution would be that a buyer can meet. We've talked about how much LPs value alignment. And as the GP nears an exit, no doubt alignment with port co-management is key. No one wants to be in a position where management hasn't bought into the exit route. So how does one avoid that? Here's Cal Nelson from Alex Partners. The place where we find our business getting the most involved on the advisory side is in addition to just having the discussion about it, making sure that the company's operationally thinking about exit readiness and what needs to get done. And, you know, our experience has been that while the conversation's ongoing, typically there's, they don't give themselves quite enough runway to get everything in order that you might truly want them to. And so we spend a lot of time working with management teams, thinking about how to complete in-flight transformative initiatives that we want to see flow through the financials and how to think through, you know, what the value creation story might be for the next buyer, right, in terms of where the next wave of opportunities are, recognizing that they've got a day-to-day business to run, they've got a host of other activities in addition to thinking about this, but it's just too critical to let go to the last minute to start thinking about these types of things. And so that's where we're spending a lot of time on our end is, you know, making sure that we're getting out well ahead of some of these key considerations that you want to have to be able to tell the story at exit. Here's De Silva with a wrinkle I have a feeling some of our listeners have had to address. I think where it gets really interesting is when you're in the conversation on an acquisition, because then you start to see buyers try to split up through earnouts and stock compensation packages. And certainly there are a few buyers that are notorious for systematically trying to drive a wedge between the private equity owners and management. And so having these conversations and building these relationships up front so that there is some basis for loyalty and basis for kind of working together is important because that is become part of the playbook of some buyers is to drive a wedge because their interest is really for all of the deal proceeds to go to whoever is going to be working for them going forward, as opposed to the private equity owners. Richard's right. You do get to a point at exit where you can have diverging interests and we try and manage it as best we can. 
That's David Taya, the head of private equity in North America for InvestCorp. You know, we're fiduciaries for our LPs. That means we have to generate an appropriate risk-adjusted return. We may reinvest in the business along the way, but we also want to make sure management has a partner that works for them as well. So you do sometimes have really tough conversations, but if you start those conversations from a good place where everybody does believe in the long-term sustained value creation for that business, in the vast, vast majority of cases, good, reasonable people will come to a good place. I'm almost getting the warm and fuzzies here. Easy now. Let's talk about LPs, who are undoubtedly going to have their own attitudes about exits. With the IPO market shuttered at the moment, there will be quote-unquote conversations. But what are LPs' actual expectations right now? What are they concerned about? Here's Giancarlo Mark. You have to understand where the touch points, where the pressure points are right now for the LPs too. And in this market, the narrative is around debt and the pending debt maturity wall. So it's important for GPs to really hit that head on because I'm sure the LPs don't feel confident that the GPs are all dealing with what's coming up, which is maturity of debt, the cost of the debt, what it's going to be like to refinance that debt. So having that conversation, particularly with the LPAC, deal by deal, here's what we're doing to be prepared for a higher interest rate environment and perhaps an environment where we are going to struggle with refinancing what we're planning on doing, getting in front of that early on. So depending on the time in the market, those are really important things. And that's one of the things that I think is critical right now that the LPs want to hear about. But we also asked them how LPs are thinking about exits in particular and how GPs should be communicating to their investors about liquidity. I think most LPs, yes, they are asking for liquidity in the portfolio, but if a GP can demonstrate, look, this is what we set out to do. And even though we're not in a position to sell, we don't think this is the right time to sell the company. There's clear value being created. What I think it does, it will set up things for them that gives the LPs confidence that they're actually doing what the LPs hired them to do. And when they come back to market, even if the DPI is lower, the LPs will have confidence. Look, these companies are excellent companies. They've achieved the goals they set out to achieve. Or where they didn't, there was a reason and they're making the adjustments. And I think that's a really, really important thing. Because look, in two years, it's not going to be like DPI is going to be super high for all of the managers. They're going to have to demonstrate that they've created interim value that short of returning a ton of cash back to their LPs. And that's an important way to do that. And it appears a lot of GPs got that message around communicating the interim value creation. Here's David Taya. I mean, we say to our LPs, to our managers, the one thing you know for sure the day you close the deal is your model's wrong, right? Business is dynamic. COVID happens. If you bought the right business in the right sector and you've got the right team, there still should be a lot of ways to create value. So it goes back again to communication about what did you sign up to do and how you're performing and then telling stories. We need to be able to articulate the narrative of what's our investment thesis? How do we approach things? How do we source and how do we add value? And then how do we exit? And the LP needs to buy in. They're going to study all the numbers. They're going to look at all of our track records and check all of us individually out, et cetera. But they've got to buy into the story that ties into the results. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about what is the right narrative that ties to the results that we're achieving. It's important to know that LPs are looking for liquidity. I'm sure every GP on the phone knows that. Again, Giancarlo. And finding ways to get him something is critical. And tapping the secondary market is something that 10 years ago, the GP-led secondary world was an area that was unexplored by most LPs. What we're seeing is LPs understand that this is an important tool to be used. Several of them are actually have become buyers into the GP-led market. 
And this is a way that continues to keep a, an acceptable level of liquidity in the market that's a win-win for everyone. So many of the stakeholders are clear priorities, the buyers, the investors, the senior management. But what about employees? There's a lot of lip service paid to empowering employees and making them partners in the business. But I think the track record for any industry serving their employees well is fairly mixed, even at some powerhouse companies. So what should private equity do? How do you communicate around a change in ownership? Here's Jonathan Presnell. We take that into consideration when we think about buyer lists and ultimately the buyer. And if it's down to a private equity firm, sometimes our teams have gone out and said, look, we're just going to transition to a new private equity owner. It's going to be you know, pretty similar to what we've had to date. But if, if there's strategics involved, you obviously can't say that. So it's really situationally specific. But I think being as open as you can within reason and not making promises and kind of setting expectations the right way. You know, the, the rumor mill will happen, right? The CFO is staying there till midnight when he usually <laughs> leaves earlier than that. And there's there's a lot of new diligence requests and things like that. It's tough to keep it completely a secret. So it's just trying to figure out what's that right communication that kind of strikes the right balance of being open, but also kind of fits with how the business operates. But De Silva stresses that the private equity firm isn't the only party to decide the level of candor to have with the employees. I really try to be very respectful of how the CEO wants to handle it because it's the CEO's shop and their people. And so, you know, encourage aggressive transparency because that's what we like to do across our portfolio. But especially in situations where a company is in an extended process, it's very tricky. You know, it's great if company gets sold quickly or, you know, kind of gets through it. But sometimes it takes a year for a transaction to close and then you run the risk of attrition. And so balancing that is critical. One often has to think through retention payments and incentive payments to stick around for an uncertain outcome for some people. And so working with the management team, telling them this is what's going on and being honest about, you know, we're not sure what your place is, depending on who the buyer is, but, you know, creating financial incentives to keep them around and keep everyone rowing in the same direction is important. And David Taya's firm also believes in very proactive communication. The key principles that we try to live by are communicate more rather than less. Full disclosure, we own a strategic communications firm. We're big believers in the importance of it's not just an afterthought. It's not the thing you do at nights and weekends. It is a core part of the proposition. Ideally, the vision mission values is really clearly articulated to the company so the employees know it. And if something's not all great, tell them early. It's in nobody's interest to sit on bad news, but it's got to be one of the building blocks at the table. You know, HR, I think people now really value chief human resource officers and that person has a seat at the executive table. I think increasingly it's true in all the big mega cap public companies. I think it's increasingly becoming true in mid-market as well that people really are getting the importance of communication much more than we have historically. As we expand that circle of stakeholders, we end up veering into ESG territory, and that's become a political football of late. It feels like half the world thinks ESG is a meaningless buzzword that doesn't make a difference, and the other half thinks it'll sink the economy if we don't focus exclusively on growth and profits. Stuck in the middle is anyone actually tasked with leading a company right now. Earlier, John Carlo noted that LPs are interested in stakeholder alignment, but what role does ESG play in that, especially when everyone seems to have their own definition of what ESG is or isn't? Look, the fact of the matter is the core components of ESG 
are really inherent to private equity, if you think about it. Private equity serves as a change engine. And ultimately, the objective for every private equity firm is to buy a business that can be improved. Uh, Employee safety, minimizing turnover, getting the best employees and getting the most out of those employees. I think that's part of what private equity is all about, right? No one's going to be able to sell a company that is not thinking if it is in a world where the environment is something that it has an impact on that is worse off than it was when they bought it. So I think there's a little bit of a fear factor of if I align with the word ESG that somehow I'm put in a bucket. I think there's a way to communicate the fact that ESG, we may not be thinking about it in a more formal way as an industry, but it's something that every GP does anyway because those are core areas of how they create value in their businesses. So GPs have the ability to define ESG the way they want to define ESG, but what LPs want to see is that the managers are systematic in the way they think about it, and it may be things that they are likely they're already doing, but just haven't formally put it down on paper in a way that an LP can say, got it, that manager is doing what I would expect them to do, even if their definition of ESG is different than another manager's definition of ESG. Kyle echoes Giancarlo's view that private equity firms are already doing plenty to address ESG issues just by aiming to create sustainable value at the portco. There have been cases where we've put together pre-deal close sort of holistic value creation views. And when we've gone back and did a postmortem on it with an ESG lens, we would say that two thirds or three quarters of it in some way or form, you know, is already touching critical aspects of ESG, whether it's employee productivity and engagement. I thought that was huge. When sort of corporate actors are trusted, we see greater access and approvals in regulated industries and more freedom to, you know, operate into new markets and those sorts of things. And so I think one, there's the component that a lot of what's happening really is addressing some of the critical components of ESG, whether you intentionally call it that at the beginning or not. And then two, I think those that take a concerted effort to take what they are doing and articulate how it's associated with an ESG program, certainly provide themselves with a a greater set of opportunities. And, you know, since this conversation tends to be around exits as well, create an environment that I think can, you know, de-risk some of the conversation on some of this stuff as well. So there's certainly a lot of goodness there that's happening. And I think that getting the right definition is critical and then being able to articulate and associate what it is you're doing along that ESG framework is a, a big piece of getting the story right. Well, that's certainly an optimistic view on the state of ESG compliance. And I think it's worth noting that improving companies might actually improve the world. If you're into that kind of thing. So that's a wrap on the second season of Disruption Matters. Rob, what do you think some key takeaways were? It's funny. I think there was one recurring theme to most of our episodes. We might talk about new technology, a closed IPO market, high inflation, or the first 100 days plan, but we keep coming back to this idea that the best counter to all this uncertainty and upheaval is the right people in the right positions. Even as businesses are busy looking for ways AI can replace people, human capital questions remain front and center. The right amount of communication, clarity, and support can't be discounted. Because I think it's safe to say that as plans, conditions, and demands change, it'll be up to someone to adapt and find a solution. And the folks that can do that today are going to be poised to make the most of clear skies whenever they arrive. People continue to be the center of the wheel. And without people, this podcast never would have come to fruition. 
The Disruption Matters podcast has been a team effort, and we appreciate all the people who have been instrumental in putting it together. Special thanks to Eric Fish, Alistair Robinson, Lawrence Dvorak, Mark Mele, Adam Kapasar, Chris Wood, Graham Kerr, Hannah Roberts, and Evie Russman at PEI. Thanks to Aaron Gomolinski and the team at Alex Partners for your help behind the scenes. To the folks at the PR agencies who helped coordinate our series guests, thank you for all your help. Thanks, of course, to all of our guests on the series. And last but not least, thanks to our listeners. For anyone who's new to the cast, please take a moment to subscribe on your preferred podcast channel. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a comment. The theme song for the Disruption Matters podcast series is Against the Clock by Rhythm Scott. I'm Chase Collum. And I'm Rob Kotecki. Goodbye for now.